From Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C., this is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk highlights Hudson's work to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In each episode, we examine, in depth, a specific policy issue that affects the United States and our relationship with the world. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you like us, please rate us. And now for today's topic. The United States' successful test of the first atomic bomb in the summer of 1945 fundamentally changed the international order and permanently and exponentially heightened the stakes of conflict between nations. Owing to this sudden, paradigmatic shift, the early days of the nuclear era were a time fraught with great fear as world leaders expected nuclear weapons to proliferate to most developed nations of the Earth. In one of his 1960 presidential debates with Richard Nixon, John F. Kennedy predicted that, quote, 20 nations will have a nuclear capacity by the end of the presidential office in 1964. He worried that, quote, the fate of the world and the future of the human race is involved in preventing a nuclear war, end quote. The Cuban Missile Crisis just two years later brought many of these fears to life for the American populace and the world. Fortunately, due to a combination of deft U.S. foreign policy and international treaties, like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty enacted in 1968, the number of nations possessing nuclear weapons nearly 60 years after Kennedy's prediction still remains in the single digits. But the non-proliferation struggle continues and faces new challenges today. To help us understand the history of nuclear proliferation and the challenges we face in 2018, our guest today is Hudson's leading expert on the topic, Richard Weitz. Richard is the director of Hudson Institute's Center for Military Political Analysis. He currently is working on two nuclear non-proliferation projects, supported by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. One is focused on promoting Russian, Chinese, and U.S. non-proliferation cooperation. The other seeks to promote bipartisan support for efforts to prevent terrorists from obtaining nuclear weapons or materials. Richard is a prolific writer, having authored or edited numerous books, and scores of papers on a wide range of defense and foreign policy topics. He is a highly sought-after commentator and analyst, appearing regularly in the United States and around the world on television, radio, and in major newspapers. He holds a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard University, a Master of Philosophy in politics from Oxford University, a Master of Science in International Relations from the London School of Economics, and a bachelor's degree in government from Harvard College, where he was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. He is proficient in Russian, French, and German. Richard, thanks for joining us on Policy Talk today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to, great to have you here. As I just mentioned, Richard, uh, you're an expert on nuclear weapons, non-proliferation, and, and the relationship between the nations, or the key nations involved, including the U.S. and Russia. Um, now, we're recording this just a few days before President Trump meets with Vladimir Putin, where nuclear issues are likely to be discussed. But before we get to that, um, let's First, maybe have you walk through a primer on non-proliferation and talk about the topic generally and why it's important. Yeah, sure. It's, it's actually a great topic for Hudson because, as you know, Hudson was partly established by Herman Kahn to look into this whole question, what's the impact of nuclear weapons on world politics? What is it? What, what changes? What doesn't? And the challenge he was dealing with was it wasn't only the United States who had nuclear weapons uh, for at the at the end of the the World War II. Shortly thereafter, a few in in 1949, Russia detonated its own uh, nuclear weapons, and then the whole question came to be: when you have two countries that can ha- can destroy each other, how do they avoid doing so? And so we developed this whole doctrine of deterrence, of, of, of stability, um, second strike, ability to, to, to make sure that if you're attacked, you can respond accordingly. And then it became more complicated with each passing decade as one after another different countries, uh, additional countries acquired nuclear weapons. So first it was Britain drawing a lot on the work that they had done with the United States during World War II and the Manhattan Project. Then uh, in the, the 60s, it was France, uh, and the, we, we had more problems in the United States dealing with France because of its complicated relation with NATO. But the real, the, uh, a more serious challenge came when China became the, the fifth nuclear uh, weapon state. 
back in, in the, the mid-60s. There's a lot of evidence that the, the Soviets were so alarmed that, that they had approached Henry Kissinger and asked how would the U.S. respond if the Soviet Union decided to destroy the then incipient Chinese nuclear force before it developed further. Um, fortunately, Kissinger said we the United States didn't, wouldn't look kindly on that. And so uh, what, what happened is in 1968, the established nuclear powers, Britain, France, uh, sorry, Britain, the United States, and uh, Soviet Union signed the Nuclear Nonproliferation uh, Treaty. Uh, and then the other countries, France, China, acceded to it. So we have five internationally recognized nuclear weapon states. They happen to be the same as those in the UN Security Council, uh, but they don't have their, UN, their permanent UN Security Council seat because of nuclear weapons. So that's just to enumerate. That's China, United States, Russia, formerly the Soviet Union then, but Russia, the UK, and France. Yes. We know there are other nations that, that also have nuclear weapons or are believed to have it. What, what does that list entail? Right. The problem is countries have that um, want to have nuclear weapons, uh, either as in the case of uh, India and Pakistan, develop them by refusing to join the, the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, resurrecting the argument that the French and the Chinese had discarded, that it was unfair to allow some countries to have nuclear weapons for a while even, uh, even um, when others were denied that. Um, and then uh, you, you have a, a, a media reports that Israel developed an, an independent nuclear force. Um, but the uh, other then the other country we, we know most recently is North Korea. There have been a lot of other countries that have considered getting nuclear weapons, and, and that's a large number at various times, went to various stages of research or conceptualization. That's Japan, South Korea, Australia, some European countries, and then some Latin American countries, Argentina, Brazil, all at, at various points when the government had people looking at the question of getting nuclear weapons. But they all uh, backed down either because of U.S. Uh, threats or in the um, case of South Africa, you had a change in government. Um, Did South, you Africa, had South Africa had weapons at one point in the 80s? Well, <clears throat> we don't know for sure. They, they, they never tested it openly. Um, it's, and so they, they certainly had an advanced nuclear program. Um, and uh, and then some countries. The, the, what's kept most countries from getting nuclear weapons has been U.S. security assurances. So we could tell the Japanese, we could tell the South Koreans, you know, you don't need nuclear weapons. We will protect you using our own nuclear weapons if necessary. And they found that reassuring enough. With the converse being, if they actually were to get their own nuclear arsenals, they would lose the U.S. support uh, <coughs> to 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 keep them. Um, the problem we've encountered recently is North Korea is basically following the path of India and Pakistan. And then Iran at various points looked like it was new weapons. Now there's not evidence they do, but there's suspicions they might in the future. And so we're, we're sort of sorting that one out, how best to reassure against that. That said, it's been pretty successful. At the time of John F. Kennedy, there was a lot of fears there would be dozens of countries that get nuclear weapons. But so far, it's just been one country at a time every decade or so, and it's slow. It's been absorbed in the system. It hasn't caused a, a major instability, um, though it's a, sort of a, a high risk uh, p potential of, of that, if, even if it's a low probability. The fear is, though, if North Korea and or Iran got nuclear weapons and kept them and developed a very robust arsenal, there'd be a lot of pressure on other countries to follow. So North Korea could drive, uh, most obviously, South Korea and Japan to pursue them. If Iran got nuclear weapons, I suspect, and the Saudis have said they would, they would shortly follow, and it's, po and it's possible Turkey's and others would too. So it's really important we hold the line, because if, we, if Iran and, and South Korea, North Korea don't get nuclear weapons, it's not clear to me if any other country in the immediate future would seek them. Now you've you've written about, or we know about there are three elements of uh, nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, there's the arms control component. There's the which is reducing the number of nuclear weapons in countries that currently have them. So the stockpiles you often hear about in the U.S., Russia. Um, there's nonproliferation generally, which is not what we were just speaking about, not allowing other nations um, to obtain nuclear weapons. And then there 
is a component called, uh, of nuclear security, which um, I know your project that that you're working on, uh, one of your projects focuses on that. The other focuses more on the more general nonproliferation uh, work. But nuclear security being keeping, not securing necessarily, well, it's component of it is securing your nuclear sites, but it's keeping nuclear weapons or nuclear, mater- nuclear materials out of the hands of terrorists. Um, so I want to talk about each of those in turn. Um, maybe we let's start with uh, the arms control component. And that plays a bit, not a bit, quite a bit into uh, the meeting that's going to be happening between President Trump and President Putin um, this coming, this next week. Um, do you want to give us a little background on, on arms control between those two nations, how China plays a role in this? Um, maybe we can start by starting talking about the START Treaty and sure. the history of that. Sure. So uh, what happened during the Cold War is for a while, both the Soviet Union and the United States rapidly built out their arsenals, and they were seen as nuclear weapons were, were seen by some as a convenient substitute for more expensive conventional weapons. And so we got to the point where we had artillery p- uh, units that could launch their own nuclear weapons. But then in, we grad- the, the capacity of conventional weapons improved, and people realized it was very dangerous to, to have so many of these weapons. It's very. It would be increases the risk of accident or unauthorized use, um, and uh, so we've been gradually reducing them either unilaterally and uh, or uh, most most well known has been these bilateral treaties we've had with Moscow, be it the Soviet Union or the Russia Foundation. Uh, the first one was negotiated under President Nixon, 1972, is called Salt, and then there was a Salt Two. At the same time, there was an ABM treaty. There has always been a, a discussion about the, the relationship between offensive and defensive forces that we can get into. Um, and this this has been continuing under various administrations then, since then. There was a, 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 an agreement under the, the, the second Bush uh, administration, George W. Bush, called SORT. And then there's most recently under Obama, there was a New START treaty. And what each of these do is they limit this, the number of nuclear weapons that countries can put on their active nuclear arsenal. That is their long-range ballistic missiles, the missiles that they launch from submarines uh, that have nuclear weapons, and uh, on bombers. Um, and the bombers can carry either as a as a in the in the, in the in the old days, they can drop an atomic bomb, or more recently, they've gotten where they point as they approach a target and then launch cruise missiles armed with nuclear weapons. And each of these forces has different advantages and disadvantages uh, in terms of these, these three, the, the strategic triad is known. And then the complication has always been that either the Soviet Union and Russia or and the United States were a bit out of cycle, so one would be starting a rearmament program when the other would be ending it, and so it's hard to get both sides to agree. Or they, they have slightly different forces. The, the, the Russians tend to favor more land-based missiles. We've been more interested in strategic submarines and bombers. And But so far, we've kept the limits. I mean, it, they've, they've re- reduced the numbers somewhat. They're less so disarmament treaties than they are arms control. So the key is focused on transparency, limits, predictability, often with on-site verifications. Um, and this has been something that, uh, as I said, we've continued for decades now. We, we have a, a, a challenge in that the existing treaty, the New START Treaty, will expire in three years. And so the current administration, the, the Trump administration, needs to decide, does it want to automatically extend the treaty for five years as provided for in the treaty? Does it want to negotiate a new treaty, perhaps with a different le- types of cuts or, or, or verification, or just to get not to have these treaties with, the, with Russia and, and, think, and think about having more freedom of action to deal with other threats? So the... Um one of the components of this is, is as you said, the strategic use of weapons. Um, the Soviets, you said, have more ground-based. I know uh, that the transparency issue for these countries is if you want to deter, um, which is the argument for nuclear weapons, is that um, you, know, we, you wouldn't want to use them. Um, so you want to know what the other side has. Um, that they're concerned with, like the U.S. is concerned with Soviet missiles that move around that they can't keep track of, whereas, um, you know, the the Soviets have concerns about American deployment methods. 
Um, to the average person, when they hear that, you know, I think it's the number, you'll know the right number, I think it's 22,000 or something warheads that are out there. It seems like there's such a ridiculous amount of nuclear weapons that um, they could easily destroy the world a few times over. Um, what's the, I guess, the what's the point of having so many warheads? And, and don't you reach a point where you don't need all that? What's the philosophy behind that in these two nations as they do their strategic planning? Right. As I, as I said, during the Cold War, they had many more. They had tens of thousands of these warheads. But they, they, don't, they realize they don't need this many. And so they've been cutting the forces. Now, the challenge with these arms control treaties is that they, they don't cover all the nuclear weapons that either side has. They cover the ones that they currently that they put on top of their long-range delivery systems. Okay. So each of the countries has warheads that are in storage, undergoing refurbishment, on shorter-range systems, and so on. So the, the number uh, limited by treaty um, is, I mean, it varies with each treaty. It's currently they're allowed to have 700 delivery systems and 100 uh, additional ones in, in, in not in the active force. Does that mean 700 missiles? Or, right. Or well, that's the catch. Missiles, right. Or... That's the catch. That's like so. Uh, it, the, the, the county rules are really key here. So an ICBM will typically count the number of warheads it's been tested with. So if we've tested a, a, a missile on our submarines with eight uh, warheads, then it counts for eight. Even though now okay. they probably have less because we've been reducing number. Now we only have maybe four or five warheads. For the treaty, they counted with a number. Some treaty. I mean, it varies a bit, and the Bush, the, the, some of the treaties have taken a different approach. But typically, they'll count the numbers they've been tested with. Um, or the, the trick is uh, most complications occur with the bombers because they're normally counted as having one, even though they often have a lot of okay. uh, – but you sometimes want to twiddle with the, the county rules a bit to privilege certain sites of assistance. So as you said, we were particularly worried by the Soviets and the Russians putting so many warheads on these long-range ballistic missiles they could move around and they could strike really fast. We thought that was very destabilizing because they would have an incentive to launch one of these missiles to so take out like 10 or how many warheads they have of ours right. first. So it's, it's almost like a first strike weapon. Yeah. Um, and so we, wanted, we were concerned in a crisis they'd have an incentive to do that. So we've been trying to push them as we have, rely more on, on submarines, which are less vulnerable, less risk of preemption. Or in the case of uh, bombers, you can recall them. Um, we've also favored bombers because we use them a lot for conventional forces. So we still have bombers that are counted against these treaties, but they no longer have nuclear weapons. They just were, they, 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 they were tri- they're attributed to a certain number. But this, the, the uh, treaties of all taken a long, you know, there's been a lot of detail describing what counts and what doesn't. Some of the treaties have gone for hundreds of pages. Um, the, the Bush administration uh, w- w- tried to depart from this. Under Rumsfeld, uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, there was a feeling this that we could go with a much less detailed treaty, just have a more simpler counting rules. But, you know, under Reagan and beyond, it's normally the approach has been trust and verify. Though we're facing now a challenge in addition to expiration is that both uh, the, the United States and Soviet Union, Russia, really want to go in different directions going forward. Okay. What's the direction the Soviet? Or yeah. we keep talking right, Soviets. Right. The Russians want to right. go in versus the United States. Right. Well, it's a similar force, just smaller to what they had uh, under under the Soviet Union. Although they're now developing a new one. So, the the uh, under uh, President Obama, uh, the U.S. wanted to proceed along the path that we were describing. They wanted. They saw the New Start Treaty, sort of a bridging treaty. The the old the Start Two Treaty was expiring, so they wanted to have something in place. And they thought that this would work for a few years, but they really wanted to go to lower numbers um, than the 1550 that we now have warheads on. The, they, they wanted to get down to 1,000. And there were some concerns in the, in the Congress and, and, and so on whether they would, that number won't be too low. But anyway, um, but the, the, the Russians um, have come increasingly insistent that they don't fa- want to proceed along this path anymore. They argue that whereas the U.S. has been trying to go down, they want to go how I would describe it is out. They want to cover uh, additional types of systems, what they call uh, uh, weapons that have strategic effects, effects, even if they're not nuclear armed. So they have in mind high-precision conventional weapons, hypersonic systems, 
uh, potentially uh, cyber weapons. Uh, along, they just want to think that any any weapon uh, that could be used to, to impact a country's strategic nuclear deterrent should be counted. Above all, of course, it's missile defenses, strategic okay, missile yeah, defenses. Sure. Um, in addition, and this is, brings back to the question you raised about China, they argued that it doesn't make any sense for any of these treaties just between to be between Moscow and Washington anymore. They we re, they argued that we need to cover additional uh, nuclear weapon states, and and who they want to include it depends a bit on the speaker. But the general sense is they would want to include the French. British and, and, and Chinese systems under any limits. It's not clear whether these countries would have to sign a formal treaty. Maybe they could agree the unilateral statements and so on. Um, but so they've so far rejected, as stated in the U.S. Nuclear Posture Review, the, the efforts of the Obama administration for, to go down these further cuts. Um, there's no indication that the British, French, or particularly the Chinese want to ha- engage in this process. The Chinese position is you eliminate your nuclear weapons first, then we'll talk about eliminating our own. And they've been much less transparent. So we've never had these kind of treaties with China. We, we don't precisely know what the Chinese have, where it's located. A lot of them are in tunnels. So it's That's, a- That was exactly going to be my next question. Yeah. Where, where, I assume the Chinese have the third most number of warheads in the world, but we don't know that for sure. Is right. The, the, the independent counts are that they're a, roughly, most analysts say they're about the size of the British and French forces, um, which is a couple hundred warheads and a couple dozen delivery systems. But there are people both in the United States and in Russia who think the number could be a lot higher. We just, we don't know. Um, and the Chinese, like the United States and Soviet Union, have been, Russia have been modernizing their nuclear forces. Um, and I and I was the current. Uh, what I think we're watching now is whether the Trump administration will break with the U.S. argument that the Chinese forces are so low that we don't need to worry about them, because as you know, the administration, based on as we saw in your last podcast, has, has a lot of concerns with with Chinese international behavior and is concerned. Uh, about giving China a free ride on these strategic systems, and they, I, there's some sense that they would want to have some limits on on the, the Chinese strategic forces. Um, in addition, the uh, there's also a treaty which is in dispute between Russia and the United States. It's called Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty (INF), yeah. which limits systems range a range of 500 uh, and uh, 50. 500, sorry, it's 5,500 and 500 kilometers. And that's precisely the range where most of the Chinese systems are because they're designed to hit uh, Taiwan, Japan, yeah. U.S. forces in Asia. And so I'm sure we would love to get the Chinese covered by that treaty as well. What, what mechanism is there to do that? And will that come up in, in Trump's discussion with Putin? Right. Well, the the normally when we have these these meetings between presidents, they'll issue a, a general statement, and and so they'll probably issue some kind of declaration about general relations, and they'll probably have something in there about wanting to contribute to further nuclear disarmament and strategic stability, but. I believe the administration has not resolved the question yet about what to do with New START. As I said, they could simply extend it. Um, they could try and go for a different kind of treaty, or they could decide uh, that because of INF and other reasons, they don't want to have a tre- another treaty with with Russia. Any, and so, but they haven't decided yet what they will do. So I I don't know what there if there's going to be any arms control uh, treaty or agreement announced at, tr- at the summit. It does not appear to be the case. The problem with the INF treaty is. At the time it was signed in the in the mid 1980s, it was basically between you know, the Soviet Union and the United States. We had the missiles of the range. That was the main concern. As you remember, there was a big crisis in Europe about yeah. the about what the Soviets and the U.S. were deploying. Um, but since then, these kind of systems have spread throughout much of the world. And so there are about 20, 30 countries now that have these kinds of systems. And so it, it makes it, – it, it, the Russians Nuclear argue uh, – no, mostly okay. conventional. Just convent, you're yeah. talking conventional. So like the Iranians, for example, launch missiles of these yeah. range. They yeah, don't right. have a nuclear warhead yet uh, or ever – but they could put one on in right. uh, them in theory. And that's a, uh, so the treaty isn't specific to nuclear weapons. It's specific to the delivery. Right. The, the missiles that yeah, it's deliver actually, them. Right. And it's also – it's even narrower than that because it's not all missiles of these ranges. only missiles launched from – ground. And so okay. 
Now, both Russia and the, the U.S. have these kind of systems on their airplane, you know, warplanes and their ships. We saw them work yeah. in Syria. So they they don't need to have the ground ones when they can launch these systems from air and sea. So there's a question now. Both countries say they want to stay in the INF. Both are accusing the other of cheating. And so we... We have to think, is it make sense to try more vigorously than in the past to try and uh, expand the range of the treaty in terms of the number of kinds of systems and uh, what to do with China and other countries that have been outside this? Uh, um, it's, it's, it's complicated because it's not clear that, any, that other countries are willing to, to join it. Or does it make sense, as at times with under consideration of the Bond administration, to go for a more general treaty which would limit the number of warheads and missiles that, that Russia and the U.S. could have, but allow them to decide whether they'd be long-range systems, intermediate-range INF systems, or on? Because right now with this dispute over cheating, uh, there's, I mean, it seems pretty clear that the Congress would not uh, uh, ratify another nuclear arms control treaty with the Soviet Russia until we resolve this dispute. And so in a way, it's, it's impeding uh, discussion of possible alternatives. So we're trying, it, it's, it's, you know, it's something that it's a challenge to people who are really concerned with arms control. Uh, do you want to sacrifice this treaty in return for perhaps obtaining a better one that would be more comprehensive in terms of size of of, of the, the numbers of countries included and the covered range of systems as the Russians are proposing? Uh, but at the risk that if you if you let some of them fail, they're just not going to be any further. And so we'll be in the same relationship we have now with the China, which is we don't have any arms control treaties right. with China. So it, it almost seems like China and I don't know if the UK and France get a free pass too. But because they when when all these uh, arms control treaties were put in place, they were had such small numbers of weapons that they weren't included. That now they kind of get a free pass. Um, and and the U.S. and the, and the Russians uh, continue to work these things out under these old frameworks. Um, do you see any change to that coming forward and, and pulling China in? Well, this has been, as I said, it's been the Russian position. And I think there's some of the Trump administration are are, are thinking along these lines, too, particularly with regard to China. Um, I mean, the Russians just treat the British and the French systems as part of the U.S. Yeah, systems, right. and whereas the British and French say, no, they're national systems. Um, but we've that's always been the, the Soviet stance, but they've tended to trade that away in negotiations. Um, the question is China is just much, much trickier. And it's probably going to have to be something that the administration deals with in its overall relationship with China. So as it deals with the Korea question, non-proliferation, uh, trade, uh, just the whole – as the last podcast about what to do, the, yeah. the South China Sea, the, that – whether – what kind of – Strategic relationship we have with China should, will pro- should be part of that review. Well, it 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 demonstrates that the U.S. relationship with Russia and the, and the former Soviet Union is a lot more mature um, than ours is with China in terms of these kind of agreements. As China is an emerging power and now um, really starting to flex its its military muscle, um, I'm sure that that uh, you know, international bodies, but especially the U.S., will begin turning there, and and we'll see how amenable they are to to joining us on, on, in maturing that relationship. Um, so as, as Trump meets with Putin, you you don't expect the start, even though it expires in three years, you don't expect the start treaty to be a major component. I, I have seen some reports that it, it could come up and it could be a, a part of this, but, um, I mean, it could be, it's, it's something easy to do. They don't need uh, congressional or lumen ratification. They just have to announce five-year extension. Yeah. Um, and to me, it would make sense just because the the plans for the uh, for the, even U.S. modernization, there's nothing in the treaty that w- that would really apply in the next five years. In any case, if you added on five more years, but I suspect the administration is trying to think about its entire approach to, to um, Russia. There's some concerns that you know you, you if, that if 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 the new start is something the the Russians propose and want, but we might want to ask for some concessions on INF or Iran or something else. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to the second component of uh, non-proliferation, which is is the more conventional uh, non-prolifer- eh, non-proliferation treaty, uh, which, as you mentioned earlier, was uh, enacted what seventy two or begun at least in in the late sixties. Um, 
and was aimed at keeping other nations that weren't already nuclear powers from becoming nuclear powers. Um, the way I understand it, it was really kind of a bargain that was put in place that, that those uh, five uh, nations, again, the UK, US, um, Britain, I'm sorry, UK, US, France, Russia, and China, uh, were all agreed to not um, share their nuclear weapons technology with, with other nations, and other nations agreed not to um, to uh, seek to obtain nuclear weapons as, as long as, and this was the bargain part, the uh, those nuclear nations uh, shared all of their non-military nuclear advancements with those nations so they could use the power and, and gain yeah. those benefits from it. Is that correct? Yeah, it's basically described as three pillars. Okay. So one is the existing nuclear powers were allowed to have nuclear weapons for a while, but and, and these were the countries that had tested nuclear weapons at you know, the time the treaty was, was uh, uh, adopted. And they would commit to a, a disarmament, eliminating their nuclear weapons, and there was never any timetable with this. And so there's always dispute whether they're going fast enough and so on. Then they, in, in return, they agreed to work t- and other countries agreed to avoid acquiring their own nuclear weapons. So they all, uh, so any country that signs it that doesn't, the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, that does not have nuclear weapons agrees it won't get nuclear weapons. So Iran has signed the treaty, so it's, so it's legally obliged not to pursue nuclear weapons. The North Koreans have exited from the treaty, which is a questionable a question, whether you can do this under national law is questionable. But that's yeah. that, that's basically that was two thousand three, correct? Yeah, and that was sort of a sign of what they were up to uh, even then. Um, and then um, the third part, as you said, is that the countries that have advanced nuclear technologies would help other countries to um, benefit from the peaceful applications of of this kind of nuclear technology. But there's been a challenge um, in this in that if a, you help a country or you allow a country to develop advanced civilian nuclear capabilities, and this is coming up right now with Iran, um, it's if they can make their own nuclear fuel, if they can enrich uh, uh, uranium t- to fuel a, a civilian nuclear reactor, it's not too much harder to enrich it further to allow it to, to detonate a nuclear uh, explosion. And so the U.S. has been struggling to prevent, uh, to, to limit the number of countries that have the capacity to make nuclear fuel. This is something that traditionally uh, the Soviets and the Russians have cooperated well with the U.S., um, they uh, have not, don't want other countries to have nuclear weapons either. Uh, they will often work with the U.S., as in the case of North Korea, to try and prevent that. Uh, one of the the requirements that we impose on countries, if we give them nuclear fuel and they use it in a nuclear, a civilian nuclear reactor, they then have to give it back rather than keep it because it could, the once, once the fuel has gone through, it can be used to make plutonium weapons and so on. So we've also, uh, that's traditionally been a, a source of cooperation. The Chinese have swung over at the time of Mao. There was a bit more eagerness to spread these these uh, the capacity to make uh, advanced uh, nuclear commercial reactors and hence potential for nuclear proliferation. They've become more concerned about the spread of nuclear weapons, but there's always been a concern on the U.S. side that the, the Russian and Chinese governments are not fully controlling what some of their Either their um, influential businesses or people within their countries are doing. So you sometimes worry that some of the uh, some of their uh, entities, as is now known in the jargon, are helping other countries get nuclear weapons for money or out of other reasons. And so we will apply sanctions the U.S. on sometimes Chinese and Russian companies for their dealings with Iran, and they object and so on. So it's not been totally free from. Uh, contention, but it's generally an aim that we all share, uh, at least at the level of government leaders. Um, and then it's a question of how best to prevent the spread. So, who is this a job of the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, to monitor these things? I mean, what I think, you know, as a layman on this issue, it, how do we know that when, you know, the Saudi Arabia's announced they want to build some nuclear 
reactors. Uh, there's a lot of for for just commercial energy use um, in their nation, but there's a belief that well, that's the precursor to them being able to enrich their own fuel. Um, what is the kind of firewall that prevents that from happening when you've set up a nuclear power plant in your country? Right. Um, the the what is normally happens is that when they put out a contract for to develop these kind of commercial uh, systems, they will get uh, the assistance of an existing country, a country that has the capacity to make these, and they, as part of the deal. They will impose certain requirements for monitoring, verification, taking back the fuel, and so on. Uh, in addition, as part of the NPT, the countries agree to put their nuclear facilities under safeguards. And so they will uh, allow uh, the IEA to uh, be able to monitor what they're doing. And this has become more stringent over time because of our experiences, for example, with Iraq and, and Libya and so on. That in the past, the safeguards were uh, the the governments that were benefiting from civilian nuclear technology would need to report to the IAE what they're doing. Um, we found the problem uh, that wasn't a sufficiently high standard because the countries were doing things and then not uh, telling the IAEA about it. Um, and the IA inspectors were only supposed to inspect the, you know, and monitor the declared nuclear facilities. Okay. And the problem was, you know, saying was doing these things at undeclared sites. So now we've uh, developed uh, the international community, being we, uh, but Russia, the U.S., China worked very hard to something called the additional protocol, which means the countries agreed to allow the IEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, to to basically go beyond their declared sites to monitor any suspect nuclear activity and and the degrees of verification vary um as as was mentioned in Michael Duran's podcast you had a, a while ago there's concerns that the Iranians are doing some things in military sites that they're not telling the IA about mm -hmm. they they say you know this is a civilian or or it's not it's not nuclear but how do you know so it, it, it's it's been tricky but the IEA is only part of it. A lot of the effort falls upon the United States and other countries to basically monitor what other countries are doing, uh, to uh, warn through uh, to each other if they detect have concerns. Uh, sometimes you've benefited from uh, revelations by, for example, in the case of Iran, by uh, an Iranian opposition group. They told us about that Iran was had this undeclared enrichment facility in Atans. And, and when we discovered that, well, then there was demands to have that inspected. So it's the IAEA, it's, it's basically the main uh, international body affiliated with the UN that does this. But it's really up to the United States and other countries to make sure that if they're sharing, if their companies are, are engaged in nuclear uh, commerce, helping other countries develop nuclear, uh, civilian commercial nuclear uh, reactors and so on, that they're not being misused and to warn about any dangerous trends. So you, you've you written, as we mentioned, you're, you have a project on um, China, the U.S., and Russia. I mean, the big three players here. Um, in some areas of nonproliferation, they work well together. Others, not as much. You've, you've argued that um, um, they've been it's been suboptimal in the last few years um, between these countries. Is are elements like the U.S. withdrawing from the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, part of that, or or why have things uh, not been as good as they could be, and how could they be better? Yeah, that's uh, the the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal is new, so it's unclear the effects. But in general, what we've been seeing is that. The arms control, the first dimension we talked about, that's been collapsing you know, in the sense that there's not uh, there's uh, disagreements over where to go next. There's no clear resolution to the disagreements we have over INF or how to include China and so on. And that's uh, as well as the other differences. I mean, the relations between the United States with Russia and with China have been deteriorating in the last few years. And it's spilling over somewhat, not as much as it could, but it's, it's having effects on their ability to cooperate in some other dimensions. It's, it's still, they still seem to cooperate at the general level on, for example, North Korea and Iran, 
But the challenge is for the U.S., it's, it's all, it, it's, is the highest priority that Iran and North Korea don't have nuclear weapons. Um, and for Russia and China, it's a priority, but it's not often the highest one. And so, you know, it's, they, all, it's kind of a shiny object that keeps the U.S. distracted. Well, yeah. In, there, so, but that, in, in, in one component. Well, that's I mean, yeah. I mean, North Korea, it's the most obvious uh, area where there, there could be differences. So the Chinese don't want North Korea nuclear weapons, but they don't want to see the regime collapse or have or, or be united in with South Korea and have the U.S. military move forward. And so there are competing priorities. As you mentioned, there are some suspicions that uh, that the, there are people in China and Russia who want North Korea and Iran to have, if not nuclear weapons, at least, at least missiles and so on, to keep the Pentagon off balance, distracted, right. gain leverage. You know, we have to deal with, as we've seen, we saw with President Trump, we have to deal with Beijing. Um, but it's not as much as they could. I mean, the Russians and the Chinese could really could wreck the ability of the U.S. to prevent Iran and North Korea from getting nuclear weapons. They haven't done that. Yeah. I mean, I was even Iran. I mean, it would have been much. Many people argue that the, it would have been better for Russia if Iran had, had not signed the the GCPOA. It stayed in confrontation with the U.S. because you know it basically gives it gives Russia and Chinese companies a lot of opportunity to move in there. And for Russia's point of view, it keeps energy prices high because of global tensions. But no, they they apparently worked with us for that. It's a new challenge now with the U.S. leaving the GCPOA. But so far, it's the it's been uh, the Europeans who have been leading the most visible objections. Right. The Russians, the Chinese are sitting back. But I'm pretty sure that as the Western companies depart, some Russian and Chinese companies will fall in as much as they can yeah, thereafter. Yeah. And so we'll probably that will probably be both those issues will be a topic of the President uh, Trump's uh, talks with President Putin and other Russian officials in Moscow how to deal with Iran and North Korea uh, under the new security environments. So in the, in the time we have left, let's talk about the uh, third pillar of, of your work and non-proliferation generally, which is nuclear security, keeping uh, nuclear weapons out of the hands of terrorists. Obviously, this is an uh, area where you have to be 100% um, you know, right 100% of the time. Um, one slip up and and we could have catastrophe on our hands that we that would make nine eleven look uh, you know pale in comparison as, as awful as that day was. Um, we one of the areas you know you mentioned a minute ago as we were talking about uh, monitoring you know nations. We uh, maybe you can talk as we lead into this topic uh, a little bit about the AQ Khan uh, situation we had years ago where a Pakistani kind of the father of the Pakistan nuclear program that, um, and the weapons development there, which, as you mentioned, is not within the framework of these treaties. But um, how that information was shared with uh, other countries and, and whether there was concern that terrorists got uh, information from him. And, and then just talk generally about, about your work and the concerns in this area and how we keep uh, nuclear weapons out of terrorist hands. Right. Uh, the, yeah. The, so the term nuclear security, at, at least in the, the the sort of the expert community, they, it's meant to the idea of keeping nuclear weapons, fissile materials away from terrorists. And this concern became evident uh, because of something like the AQ Khan network. Now, it was, as far as we know, I mean, he was a uh, former important official in the Pakistani nuclear weapons program. And he basically just, uh, saw some loopholes in the existing treaties and set up what some one person has referred to as sort of a, a nuclear Walmart. So he would sell centrifuges, advanced nuclear technologies, mostly to other countries, but in principle, it could get, it'd be diverted. Um, and in addition, we've seen, and there are other people well, who had some more qualified to talk about this, so we've yeah. seen a different kind of terrorism in the past. In the past, there was terrorism for specific goals. You know, Northern Ireland, I mean, it was clear what they were, the Baths, they were yes. for separation. So they didn't want to kill everybody. They wanted to basically achieve their goal and their violence yeah, was tried to be targeted. Right. Whereas now you've got in, in, in groups that like the Imshimrikyo in Japan or um, Al-Qaeda or Islamic State, 
that sometimes seem to glorify in death itself. They, and so allowing these ki uh, kinds of groups access to nuclear weapons or even fissile material, which they could use in a dirty bomb, which is basically a conventional bomb that has radioactive material in it. And then if, you know, if it detonates in Wall Street or in Washington, nobody would come into I mean, just take out a, a city in terms of actual operations, even if it was You look nowhere. at Fukushima, no one's going right. anywhere near there. Right, or Chernobyl, yeah, that right, kind of thing. Right. Um, and so the that now in principle, and this is, gets back to the the topic we raised about the suboptimal cooperation. I mean, in principle, no government's in favor of nuclear terrorism, right? right. And so the, the the challenge again has been that even though it's been a priority for the U.S., Russia, and China, and other countries, it's not been the highest priority. So. When it, when you're we're dealing with a country like you know in some African country that may have a nuclear reactor that it's it's potentially vulnerable to terrorists, they it's hard we have to persuade them that it's a serious threat. They're not really that's not a priority, and they don't they can't see why terrorists would use the weapon. Well, it's again. not a national security threat to them necessarily. Right, right. But if we right. but it, you, but and so it's one of those uh, low probability but really high consequences. Events. Now, the U.S. has always been a leader in this. Under President Obama, the nuclear security summits. Under President Bush, there was the you know the non the non Luger initiative. So the U.S. has always had very strong leadership in this. But other countries have been lagging, and so part of our uh, the concern uh, we have for my program is to make sure that the U.S. keeps this priority and is able to have the tools to for uh, to. To, to work with other countries and are necessarily fourth other countries to comply. Um, and you know, it's a different generation now of, of U.S. leaders. President Trump, like all previous presidents, has said this is his highest priority, but we want to make sure that remains. And it's something that, it's, as I said, it, it takes really strong presidential leadership reinforced by a strong Congress in favor to make this an effort because otherwise people just sort of take it for granted. And as you said, we can't wait for an incident to occur to then remind us how important this is. We have to prevent a nuclear terrorist incident rather than respond afterwards. So are you comfortable with uh, where we are in this right now? Do you think the um, involved parties are doing a good job of preventing this? I mean, obviously, we haven't had an incident, but do you have concerns? Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night sweating? Uh, I wake up in the middle of the night all the time, but it, though that's just because, <laughs> because of other problems. I think I just <laughs> old age, unfortunately. Um, but I do. I think, you know, it's it's. I have concerns because we've made a lot of progress in this, and it's been a bipartisan priority. So we saw under you know, both President Bush's and, and, and Clinton and, and Obama a lot of effort in this. But there's still a lot of to be, remains to be done. So there are still gaps in the in the uh, uh, the authorities countries have to prevent to to make sure that nuclear material is secure. There's still a lot of new material out there that doesn't need to be there that should be reduced or consolidated. Um, and, and we're talking when you say nuclear material, we're not talking about nuclear bombs per se. Right. We're just talking about radioactive nuclear um, fissile material that can be used for dirty bombs, which makes this a much. I think when a lot of people think of this problem, they think, well, as long as the Russians know where all their missiles are, you know, you think of Tom Clancy's "Sum of All Fears," where you know a terrorist group gets a hold of one nuclear warhead, and but we're we're talking, I mean, nuclear right. material, radioactive materials right. used in. All kinds of right. Uh, elements. Right. We were very scared when the Soviet Union fell apart. What was going to happen to all these nuclear weapons? So we tried to, as you remember, we eliminated the ones who were in Kazakhstan and Belarus yes. and yeah. Ukraine. More controversially, we eliminated those. And there are some Ukrainians, of course, now have <laughs> you know, <laughs> regrets. Yeah, right. but but anyway, um, but it appears that thanks to uh, the, the the work of the United States and European countries and the, the Russian the Russian government themselves under Yeltsin, they they've got those are pretty secure. But the challenge is there during the Cold War, the Russia and Soviet Union and the United States often were in competition to share the benefits of the nuclear revolution. So remember Eisenhower, Adams for Peace, right? So we would get, we allow lots of countries to have advanced nuclear technologies, reactors, research sites. 
Um, and since the end of the Cold War, we've been working with Russia to basically either close these sites and return the vulnerable material to more secure storage in, in, in our countries or to cause these nuclear reactors not to, to, to use a less sensitive kind of fuel, build up their security procedures. Um, and that project has been ha is not fully completed. And the worry now is the Russia-U.S. spillover conflicts and all these other areas are impeding that kind of progress. There are congressional prohibitions now, for example, on how we can work in Russia's in this area. Um, China has been uh, becoming, becoming an emerging partner. It's an area where we, we have a joint, for example, Center for Nuclear Security and so on. But again, you worry about the spillover of the larger relationships, how it's going to affect that. And the U.S., we want to make sure that there's a, a next generation, future champions of this area, um, somebody who can pick up the mantle for Senator Nunn and Senator Luger and, and others that are retiring. And so we're trying to work with Congress. Hudson has been sponsoring a course with members of congressional staff to try and make sure they understand the challenges here, teach them about these. Um, and then that's why I appreciate the opportunity to this podcast. It allows me to reach an audience of, of concerned listeners, and I'm happy to engage with them further if they want to contact me. Um, my, my email is whites at hudson.org, and I'm happy to you know, work with, you, with them further. Great. Well, this is truly important work that you that you're doing. Um, it's not something that's on the front page of the of the papers every day. But uh, as a child of the of the Cold War, um, I know that uh, what what fear um, nuclear the threat of of, of nuclear war of, of, uh, can can bring. And um, it's it's nice that we've had a couple decades now where that hasn't been the front page news. But it's still always a threat, and it's great to have people like you working on that and and making sure that um, we keep these regimes in place and, and keep these uh, nuclear powers um, secure and, and focused on the treaties and, and not on using their weapons uh, aggressively. Um, Richard, is there anything you want to, any other issues you want to close with? Or? No, you've done a great job. Thank you. We covered every you know, key important points, and I look forward to further dialogue. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. And again, I want to thank all of our listeners for downloading our podcast today. Um, please subscribe, uh, rate us, uh, write a review even, especially if you like our podcast, um, and tell your friends about us. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, as always, don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. And from all of us here at Hudson Institute, we appreciate you joining us today. Again, I'm Brian Blake. Thank you for listening.